Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll. This is the program that's got his groove going on. We have a lot to share today. And part of that sharing is you calling in and giving us the feedback on what you're hearing. Now, we have a broad base of issues. Of course, we begin with the latest on health and healing. But then I'm going to play you two clips. One clip, well, they're both by um, very prominent people. One, a physician of 55 years, and a Vernon Coleman. And he has a blog that's, I think, old man in a chair. His mind is as sharp as it come, and he has spent his entire career challenging big pharma, uh, nuclear radiation, wars. He, he's taken on all these. And, but what is happening now is there, Wikipedia in particular, and others are destroying his reputation. And he's just had enough. So he's saying goodbye and thank you. I want to play that little clip. Because when you have a warrior like him stepping out of the battle, then you don't have someone taking their place because they were such a magnificent uh, fighter on our behalf. So it's my way of showing appreciation to Dr. Coleman. And mind you, that's what's happening with social media today. Bots, astroturf groups, sock puppets, gaslighting, Corporate America has mastered how to use its money to go after anyone who challenges its profit base or reputation. But then one person is, in my personal opinion, uh, he's just done something that you cannot get away with. Dr. Michael Yeadon, Y-E-A-D-O-N, prominent uh, scientist for 40 years. In fact, he was the vice president of a division of uh, research at Pfizer, and he just, uh, not only did he retire after 30 years in the business, 10 years ago, but he then went on to create his own companies. He's not just pro-vaccine, he's hyper-pro-vaccine. He actually was part responsible for creation of vaccines. He has a background in immunology and virology. And uh, what he's saying that you hear today is simply reputational suicide. He's smart enough to know they're not going to allow him to get away with this. But at least in this show and today, you'll have a chance to hear him. What do you want to bet that every single source that he can use, except those that are private, they'll close down on him? Because they don't allow someone who sat at their table, who brought them products that made them billions of dollars in profits, who published in every major peer-reviewed journal you could imagine in his field, to get away with what he is saying. But I'm not going to tell you what he's saying. I want you to hear it from him. And mind you, at the beginning of this, if someone said, was this planned? I said no. And I said no. Could it have been planned? Yes, it could have been planned. That's a hypothetical possibility. But do I have hard proof it was planned? At that time, I do not. Did not. But he believes otherwise. And it took him a long time to come to that decision. Is he right or wrong? In time, we will find out. But to support some of what he is saying, I'm going to play some other clips that you're not aware of and read your report why I will not take the Johnson Johnson vaccine by an MD-PhD in virology, by the way. So you're talking about a heavyweight. And he is pro-vaccine. But this particular physician and scientist is giving you the reasons why. And it's going to be a little technical but now that that's no, no way in the world, impossible for this RNA to adversely affect your DNA and to do any gene jumping or transform your body biochemistry, now a whole group of leading scientists are saying, not true. And so I'm going to lay out why that's the case. Now, tomorrow I'm going to play you a clip, a 10-minute clip of an outstanding scientist who did the methodical detail work to prove that there was no 95% efficacy with any of these vaccines. To the contrary, it's like 1% or less efficacy. Well, if a vaccine was only 1% efficacious, would you take it, knowing that it was 99% non-efficacious? That's a no-brainer. But it's very technical. But I want this information because we have a lot of scientists, 
we have a lot of people, doctors, nurses, who listen to this program. I'm posting all of the articles on our website so you can refer to them in length yourself. So that's what we're up to. So let's begin. And we're starting with quercetin, Q-U-E-R-C-E-T-I-N, from the uh, Zizang Province People's Hospital in China, comes a study about quercetin alleviating pulmonary arterial hypertension by regulating inflammatory cytokines. Cyto, C-Y-T-O, kinds, K-I-N-E-S. That's what caused a lot of people to die from COVID, the high upper respiratory tract infections. It also is what caused a lot of people with Alzheimer's, dementia, multiple sclerosis, and ALS to advance with their disease because of cytokine inflammation in the brain and spinal cord. So quercetin is just one of those superstars that you should be taking every day. In any case, the study showed that they were able in this laboratory experiment to turn off that cytokine inflammatory storm using quercetin. It's that simple. From Texas State University, something that I've been doing my entire career and advocating others to do, intermittent fasting. In this case, they say that intermittent fasting will provide a broad range of health benefits. Now, intermittent fasting may provide significant health benefits, including improved cardiometabolic health, improved blood chemistry, and reduced risk of diabetes. And uh, that's what they found in the Department of Health and Human Performance when they authored this study. So what does it mean to do intermittent fasting? It means time-restricted feeding, and that's shown to improve body composition and blood lipids, as well as reduce markers of inflammation, oxidative stress. So you're going to have a normal, more normal metabolism if you fast. So let's say I eat my last meal at 6 o'clock at night, and I won't eat my first meal until, let's say, 10 o'clock the next day. Well, from 6 to 6 is 12 hours. That's good. And then from 6 in the morning till 10 is 4 hours. So that's 16 hours that I've given my body a chance to have no solid food. Now, I get liquids, and yes, but that extends your lifespan. That's important. From the University of Minnesota Medical School comes a study that shows that there are six unhealthy eating habits that are linked with COVID and uh, a new probe into the lingering impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic revealed correlations to these unhealthy behaviors. What are they? I'm sure you ha are aware of that. It, in fact, to tell you how serious they are, there's a lots of eating disorders, and these eating disorders are not healthy, but they are mindless eating and snacking, meaning you're just going to eat whatever is in front of you and because it's there. Increase food consumption. You eat something, but then, hey, there's more of it on the plate, so you eat all of it, even though your body doesn't need all of it. So you're gorging. When you gorge, you completely inflate the stomach. When the stomach is completely full, you might triple the amount of time it's going to take to digest that food and get it into the intestine, deacidify it, the duodenum. But it just generally happens just the opposite because we put so much liquid in our meals by drinking cold or hot beverages that dilutes the natural pepsinogen and, and all of the lipase and the other enzymes necessary to digest the protein, fast carbohydrates. So at a certain point of fullness, the bottom flap of the stomach, the pyloric sphincter versus the cardiosphincter at the top of the pear-shaped stomach, it opens up and partially digested food goes into the intestine. That's not good because the intestine cannot really digest food beyond that. It can deacidify it. It can help break down some of the fat with bile from the gallbladder, 
But if you have too much fat in there, and most people do, that just congests the whole digestive process. It's like being on a on a highway and going from 70 miles an hour to 12 miles an hour. Everything slows down. That's not good. That means that the toxins in the food that you're consuming, and I rarely see people binge on healthy, organic, plant-based food. So the fact that you're binging, overeating, generally is because of psychological reasons. And now that stays in contact with the surface area, the mucous membrane. And the mucous membrane is the endothelium of the intestine. And so where you f should be digesting food and absorbing it through the geogenin, one particular part of the intestine where millions and millions of follicle-like uh, extensions absorb nutrients, take them in, and then they go through the liver and metabolism and distribution and assimilation occurs. So little of that is done. Now, if you eat so much that you have indigestion, so you take an antiacid, which most people do, that stops digestion. That means the dumping is going to be all of it, incomplete, so you've been overfed and undernourished with that meal. So you got the calories, but you didn't get anything of value. And now you don't have the fiber, so now you got constipation. That leads to pressure illnesses. So you see, when you are not eating right, and you're increasing your food consumption, and then you're going to end up with a generalized decrease in real appetite, and you're not going to, you're not going to cope with issues in life, so you're going to cope by eating comfort foods. And then, through the pandemic, people have taken less supplements, so you're going to be nutrient deficient. And that can cause eating disorders. Just to let you know, those are, re those are directly related to the uh, problem. And ginseng uh, offers greater weight loss hope. Tennessee State University, that's good. This was published in the Journal of Nutritional Biochemistry. So make sure you're getting your ginseng. And also for anyone having an intentional pregnancy, don't micro microwave and eat food because the canisters you're microwaving in, generally plastic or aluminum, particulate matter breaks off, goes into the food. You can't see it with the naked eye, like phylates, etc. Now, according to the University of Illinois, those chemicals widely used in packaging and consumer products interfere in the normal hormonal function and development in human and animal studies. And now there's new research linking pregnant women's exposure to these chemicals cooking healthy foods. And also from the University of Gothenburg, which is in Germany, published in the Journal of International Internal Medicine, they looked at 1,258,432 men and uh, at the age of 18, and then they checked them again years later, and they found that more men, young men, under 40, are having heart failure and stroke. Well, there's two reasons for that. Faulty diet, too high in salt, and stress. Lack of exercise, I'll also throw in there. So these are the things that if we pay attention, can make a big difference. That's the latest in health and healing. We're 15 minutes into our program. And I'm going to take a break now. And when we come back from the break, we're going to go to two back-to-back -back videos. The first is a man who's been a fighter on your behalf, whether you ever heard of him or knew, knew him. He's a prolific author, but he is one of the people like Ralph Nader that's always been there fighting on our behalf. But evidently, he's just taken such a beating because through his whole career, his personal reputation and character were never challenged. Now on Wikipedia, they are. Uh, we're reaching out to him to see if he wants to join our lawsuit. We, In fact, even as we speak in my New York office, uh, their lawyers meeting, the battle begins shortly. I will keep you all posted once it begins. But he really deserves to have his reputation reinstated. He doesn't believe it's possible. He may be right. But let's just hear from someone. And then we're going to hear from a doctor who made, I would imagine, I have no idea, 
but I'm going to guess tens of millions of dollars. He sold his biotech company recently uh, to a, uh, a major pharmaceutical company, outstanding reputation, one of the leading reputations in all of Europe. And he's just going against all of them. It's like Butch Cassidy sometimes, Kent, if you ever saw that movie in the ending scene, uh, they're, they're, they think there's a little skirmish going on outside and like hundreds of, of the soldiers in Mexico are there and waiting for him to exit that door and they just burst out the door with guns uh, shooting and about to meet their, their demise. What he's saying now, in my opinion, he will be completely destroyed in his reputation and all of his work for 40 years will be erased. But thank goodness we have people who have the courage to tell the truth even when it is going to make them a martyr. You won't hear this anywhere else. You will hear today. Back in a moment with those two back-to-back. And then you can call in and share your comments. Most of my life, for well over half a century, I've attacked governments, drug companies, vested interests, secret societies, lobbyists, and the medical establishment. For over a year, I've attacked the COVID-19 fraud. And as a result, my reputation has been trashed and I've been lied about endlessly. Look at what happened on Wikipedia the day after my first video went up in March 2020. I was suddenly labelled discredited and a conspiracy theorist. I had a number of videos in preparation, and although I find these things enormously difficult, I was planning to go to London on the 24th of April to take part in the big walk. I had a strong video prepared for that as an appeal to people to join us. But I've just been sent a foul and libelous set of tweets from someone who I won't name. I know nothing about the tweeter. I've never met her, never spoken to her, and never had anything to do with her. She clearly knows nothing about me. She appears to have used the video where I cried to attack me, though I confess I don't understand precisely why. The sick suggestion, which I don't begin to understand either, is that I am a Freemason. Can you imagine them letting me into the Freemasons? It would make more sense to suggest that I was a member of the Women's Institute. I've attacked the Freemasons. I loathe them and what they stand for. They doubtless hate me as much as the rest of the establishment does. And someone on this Twitter thing attacks me for having a brother who is apparently unacceptable in some way, therefore damning me by association. Well, first, I'm sorry I cried. I was genuinely upset. I released the video because I thought it would help people understand how I felt, and so I left it in. At the time, I felt embarrassed and I'm of an age to feel ashamed of crying in public. I suppose I could have had the crying edited out, but that was my second or third attempt to make that video, and I'd cried each time. And for the record, I have no brothers and no sisters, good, bad, or of any kind. None. What a pity these people don't bother to do basic research. I have no brothers. The real irony is that I can't reply on Twitter or Facebook because I was never allowed to join them because I'm considered a danger. But now I've had enough abuse. I will carry on writing articles for my two websites, but I'm not making any more videos and I'm cancelling my trip to London on the 24th. I can just about cope with the abuse from the government trolls. And who knows, maybe the ones attacking me on Twitter are 77th Brigade. I just don't know anymore. But when people who do claim to be on the same side as me say stuff like this, it's just too much. I feel as though I've been knifed in the heart, or more accurately, stabbed in the back. Who the hell do these people think they are? My wife and I have worked all the hours and days available to obtain and share information, often till four o'clock in the morning. After her cancer treatment, my wife worked in constant pain because the hospital department was shut. As a result of the campaigning, I've seen my life's work destroyed by often anonymous, sick cowards who rarely do anything but criticise and spread abuse. Right from February and March 2020, I warned these vaccines would become mandatory. That took a great deal of courage, I can tell you. I was virtually alone amongst medical doctors at the time. 
I've amassed, amassed a huge file of relevant scientific papers and I wanted to carry on, but this really is the final straw. Thank you to Mohammed Button, to Brown YouTube, who've been marvellous to me. Thank you for watching my videos, those of you who have. If you'd like to visit my websites, you will be very... Now we're going to the other gentleman. And remember, you're hearing from an ultra-Orthodox scientist, one of the most prestigious and respected in all of vaccinology. And he has just kicked down the door. Listen to what he's saying very carefully. His thoughts are very measured. This is not a conspiracy theorist. And yet, this is what we need. We need more people from the inside telling us what's going on from the inside. COVID-19 mRNA vaccine. This new technology is being advertised just about every place you go. But is this new vaccine safe? And will it one day become mandatory? I'm independent journalist Taylor Hudak, and to seek answers to these questions, today I turn to former vice president of Pfizer, Dr. Michael Yeadon. If you or someone you love is on the fence about receiving the COVID-19 vaccine or wants to learn more information, watch this video and send it to your loved ones because this is a perspective that you will not find anywhere else. Dr. Michael Yeenan, first, I want to thank you for joining me today and taking the time to speak with me. My pleasure. I'm glad to uh, inform you and your, and your audience about my, my thoughts on this matter. So before we do get started, why don't we begin with your qualifications and your background in the medical field? So I'm a, I'm a PhD research scientist. Um, 40 years this year since I started my training, biochemistry and toxicology, followed by research-based PhD in respiratory pharmacology. So I've covered a wide range of life science disciplines necessary to identify potential targets uh, for new drugs to treat respiratory, allergic, and immunological diseases. And now I've spent 32 years uh, in pharmaceutical R&D, mostly in big companies. Uh, I left Pfizer 10 years ago as head of research worldwide for respiratory. In the last 10 years, I've been an independent entrepreneur advising several dozen startup companies, and I had the privilege of founding and successfully running for five years my own biotech, which was sold to Novartis four years ago. So that's me. And you also held a position as vice president of Pfizer. I was vice president and chief scientist of allergy and respiratory research. Okay, so I just want to start basic as well. For the past year, we, of course, have heard a lot about COVID-19 in the mainstream press. It has dominated the mainstream press. And one would believe, due to this coverage, that this virus is unlike any other virus that we have been exposed to before, that it is very deadly, and that the medical field is really unsure how to treat it. Do you agree with that assessment? And can you explain what really is COVID-19? No, I don't, I don't agree with that assessment. I would say that it's actually a really rather middling kind of virus. Uh, yes, it certainly uh, has a heightened risk. If you're elderly and already ill, there's a heightened risk that it will kill you, seriously. Uh, and it is probably more lethal than influenza, say, uh, to adults over 70. But the corollary is it's less lethal to adults under 70 than is influenza. Seriously, the, the, the sharpest risk factor you can look for is, is age. And the steepness of that risk rises strongly with COVID with age and less so with influenza. And as a result, it's a really scary virus if you're old and ill, uh, but it's less lethal to people under 70 than is influenza. So you ask, you know, is the, uh, I guess you implied, is, is the policy response appropriate? No, it's not. I mean, basically all of the working population is at less risk than to influenza. There's no argument about it. So why they've done what they have done, um, your guess is at least as good as mine. We've heard a lot about the new variants within the past six months or so, and I know that you have been doing some research on this, and you just wrote a piece re recently with Mark Girardeau, and in this piece about the new variants, it states, quote, to date, 
No robust scientific evidence proves that any variants identified are more transmissible or deadly. By definition, variants are clinically identical, end quote. Can you explain the COVID-19 variants and if we should be concerned about them? And why is the media and the public health industry really causing alarm for this when there perhaps may not need to be so much concern? So let's take the first part first and then we can come back to the why question. Um, the first part. So, as I say, it's a middling kind of virus. Uh, you know, it's, it's worse than the common cold. However, it is uh, of the same class of viruses as other coronaviruses, uh, HKU1 and so on. There are four endemic common cold causing coronaviruses. And all that's happened is that SARS-CoV-2 is, as it were, uh, it's a more lethal version of, of that. But it, it's not unfamiliar. It's of a viruses that's been amongst us for thousands of years. Um, so variants. This is a very large virus. It's uh, made, people may understand that it's made of protein. Proteins consist of amino acids. They are the building blocks of protein. And this virus consists of about 10,000 of those building blocks. If you look for the variant that's most different from the original sequence from Wuhan in late December, January, a year and a half ago, a year and a third ago, you find the thing that's most different from that. I was stunned to find that it's only 0.3% different. It's a slug of a virus in terms of changing its form. So in 16 months, it's moved 0.3% in its sequence. The corollary is true. That means all the variants are 99.7% identical. So if you imagine holding up one virus and another, 997 your, your visual system would maybe struggle to spot the differences. And uh, if there were small differences, you would very much recognize them as, uh, as a pair. And you would see that they were so closely related that you might even think one glass thing are the same. The same is true of your immune system. Normally your immune system, when it spots a pathogen, a new foreign organism, it cuts that organism up into a couple of dozen pieces, maybe hundreds sometimes, and goes through a molecular identity parade, offering each of those pieces in turn to your immune system until some cells in your immune system say, hey, I recognize that little piece, and they're advised to go off and multiply the cells that recognize that piece. And it goes so on, so on, so on, until you've taken a molecular identity parade uh, of all of the pieces that the virus can be cut up into. So now if a variant comes along that is 0.3% different, 99.7% the same, and your body cuts it up into little pieces, as you would expect, most of those little pieces are identical to the little pieces that you cut up from the earlier virus. In other words, these small changes in the variants are hopelessly little to fool your body into thinking it's a new pathogen. And it's a really important point. When people talk about immune escape, they mean your body is fooled and thinks it's a new pathogen. It's simply not possible. And let's let me quickly, quickly give you a, another yardstick so you can judge whether you believe what I'm saying. You may remember in 2003, there was an earlier SARS virus that didn't spread so widely around the world, but it was alarming. Uh, SARS-CoV-2, uh, the latest version, is 20% different from the SARS-2003, 20%. That's about 80 times more distant than any of the variants are from the current virus. But there were some enterprising immunologists and they managed to find some people who'd been infected with SARS in 2003 and asked them if they would be willing to donate some blood and they did. And they extracted their uh, T memory cells and asked two, two important questions. Did they still remember SARS 17 years later? They did, all the people who had been infected 17 years ago, their cells were lit up when they saw the same virus. The second question was, if you give them today's virus, SARS-CoV-2, did, did they respond or not respond? They all responded. And it shouldn't be that much of a surprise because 80% of the new virus and the old one are identical. And so with that story, 20% difference is completely inadequate to fool your body that it's a new virus. So why in the world would you possibly believe people telling you that 0.3% is enough to cause a problem? The answer is it's not. Uh, to your question about why it's why that's been why we've been told otherwise, uh, my straight answer is it's not my crime.
So I don't know why they're doing it, but they are lying to us. They're directly telling untruthful statements that I, I know as an experienced immunologist, reading the literature, looking at the theory and the practice, it's, it is a lie. And I worry about that. Now, people hearing this right now are probably feeling quite alarmed, but not surprised. A lot of people feel lied to right now, but it still is very scary. Can you think of possibly why we are being so deceived? Yes, I, 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 had, I worked out quite early on that we were not being told the truth, probably uh, late April last year. Uh, after once the first lockdown was maybe three or four weeks old, and uh, I had seen that the peak of deaths, peak of excess deaths had passed in the UK, and I was relieved. And I could see the number of daily deaths was falling. And instead of then the government saying, the worst of the wave has passed, you know, go back to your normal lives, they said, we're going to lock you down again and again and again, until it was like midsummer. And at that, at that point, uh, during that period, I worked out something very malign is going on. So um, as to what that was, um, I kind of self-centered for several months because I also didn't have an answer. But I've come to the scary conclusion that really what this is about is getting the world's population onto a, the world's first, uh, you know, um, um, what do you call it, data, what, the world's first uh, database with common uh, format where all of us will have a unique ID, a unique ID, and there'll be at least one field that's editable which will contain uh, either a thumb up that your vaccine passport is valid or a thumb down that say it's not. Now, there could be as many fields as you like added to that. I'm, I'm not a technologist, so I couldn't tell you what else could be done. But if, if this vaccine passport scheme comes into being, you know, if, I, if I'm vaccinated, I'll have an app, presumably with a QR code that says who I am, where I am, and that I'm entitled per the algorithm that's enforced that day to cross a particular threshold or conduct a particular transaction. If on the other hand, my vaccine passport is invalid, I will be prevented from crossing a threshold or performing a transaction. I call that totalitarian control. There would literally be nothing that I might want to do that wouldn't be in the gift of whoever controls that database and the algorithm. And what they will do, I believe, is that I think is the objective of this global fraud, is to push everybody onto this. That's only 10 minutes of a one hour discussion. I will play you other segments later on. Remember, he is coming out swinging saying they're lying and they're lying about everything. Here, by the way, just a quick program announcement. Um, Anna Gardner is an attorney who has been practicing law in New Mexico for 40 years. She also has background degrees in biology, University of New Mexico. And uh, she was also on the faculty of University of New Mexico's law school. She litigates a lot, and she's now bringing lawsuits out of New Mexico to defend your freedom of choice. She'll be for a full hour on tonight's Progressive Commentary Hour. So you, hopefully you will hear that because we're going to win the battle if we're going to win it at all not just by refusing what they're dictating and demanding, but also uh, when it comes to uh, beating them in court. And by the way, I'm going to play you another clip. This is a mainstream orthodox news clip from a major network. Why did we hear it once and never discussed anywhere in the media? Not a discussion. It disappeared. But we captured it. Now, you will hear this <laughs> This fellow in the background. <laughs> He's like a cheerleader. Uh, so... Uh, sorry that you know that that we can't edit that out, but he's the one who filmed it, so we thank him for filming this. It was one of those. It was like uh, to me, it was like uh, uh, the building seven collapsing, and they announced this collapse before it actually collapsed, and no one seemed to care about that, or all the people who, the firefighters and first responders who heard uh, explosions in the base in the basement, and people actually were in the basement and saw the explosions, and yet never once invited to give that testimony. So why did they say this? Because listen carefully what these news people are saying. Listen carefully and then ask yourself, if that's what's really happening, why did they lock us down, have masks, social distance, close businesses? Why? There's no science whatsoever to back up what they did. Before that, however, 
I want to thank Luke Yamaguchi and Dr. Gary Coles from Global Research. Quote, another of the many dark sides of vaccines, getting the vaccine after having had the infection. Uh, and here's what it says. This is, quote, uh, Dr. Human uh, Norchasm sent an open letter to the FDA and Pfizer warning of the potential danger of giving COVID vaccines to people who have already had or currently have COVID-19. As a MD, PhD in cellular immunology, Dr. Norchasma based his warnings on an, quote, immunological procrastination outline. People who have recently had or currently have COVID-19 can have viral antigens present in the endothelial lining of blood vessels, among other, other tissues. If these viral antigens are present, the immune response triggered by COVID vaccination will target these tissues, causing inflammation and damage. In blood vessels, this can result in blood clot formation with the potential for major complications. In other words, people who have previously had COVID will be at greater risk of adverse events if they receive the COVID vaccinations. To be clear, uh, this is a theory based on understanding of immunology by one of America's leading MD-PhDs in the field. And uh, also um, give you one example, Dr. J. Barton Williams, a 36-year-old orthopedic surgeon from Tennessee. According to the local news report, he died of a COVID-related illness known as multi-system inflammatory syndrome that causes inflammation in the blood vessels and other tissues, and he died after getting that. And uh, so... You also have people dying a couple weeks, three weeks later, and yet the media continues to say, and pro-vaccine people, which they have a right to be pro-vaccine, I don't have any problem with that, but they're condemning people who have the intelligence, scientific background uh, to know the truth of how dangerous these vaccines are and the fact that we, all you have to do, every single day we look at the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System and you see Delayed cases now happening, and you see a lot of young people dying. And if you look at the numbers in Europe, it's approaching 6,000 dead and 300,000 with serious adverse effects. Now, considering 1% to 10% maximum adverse reporting, you're looking at millions of injured and tens of thousands dead. If any drug ever did that, or even one hundredth of that, it'd be banned. So just understand what's going on. Now, this is just an hour ago uh, from the Academy of National Medicine and uh, in France. They just published a statement. French National Academy of Medicine, COVID nasal swabs associated with increased meningitis risk. The invasive up-the-nose test, quote, are not without risks. You mean you're telling us now? after millions of people in the United States and more around the world have been vaccinated and also gotten their nasal swab. Good news, at least, is coming from other uh, major medical sources. This is the Lancet. Quote, is ivermectin ready to be part of a public health policy for COVID prophylaxis? They did a careful review. The answer is yes. So what was condemned before by orthodoxy, don't use ivermectin, and we saw the science and we said yes. And by the way, uh, Johnson & Johnson's having all kinds of problems with their vaccines, and yet they're still being promoted. In fact, vaccination sites shut down in four states after more than 45 people suffer severe adverse reactions. And yet people will say, well, it's for the greater good, not to the people who are injured and died. And also, we the people, with our tax dollars, through Anthony Fauci, these disperse billions of dollars to pharmaceutical companies who don't have to re uh, give that money back and then can sell the government the vaccines they make. So they're making billions of dollars in profit, no out-of-pocket expenses. So what's the deal? Well, this is the latest on that. Quote, U.S. COVID contract details are, quote, trade secret. Quote, 
Companies taking millions of dollars from the U.S. government to fight the pandemic are using exemptions to hide travel expenses, labor costs, and even why they are qualified for the, for the job. This is from MIT's Technology Review, Kat Ferguson. So we're pumping billions of dollars into projects aimed at curbing the pandemic, according to Kat Ferguson, and yet they're not relaying any of this to the public. They don't have to. They don't have to show anything. My God, that reminds me, of the, you know, of, of how, of how the tobacco industry was able to hide all this. And also another good article. This is today, an hour ago, from the International Journal of Microbiology, and it says a COVID nineteen prophylaxis lower incidence associated with prophylactic administration of ivermectin, from Daniel Helwig. So. This is also from Plymouth State University and Rhode Island College, up at, and this was from MIT's. So, what we talked about a year ago, ivermectin, zinc, azithromycin, hydroxychloroquine, and zinc, have all been shown to work prophylactically, but ivermectin in particular, because you can use it in low dosages, three milligrams, even if you're infected, it's the best thing in the world that we have and have had inexpensive. A whole round of treatment costs maybe 50 bucks. And, uh, but people at risk can use it prophylactically as well. So now what everyone condemned, what the New York Times and all these other publications dutifully criticized, don't use any of this, there's nothing to do, just wait until you have to go into a hospital and die, wait for the vaccine. Because if we have known products, medications that can help a person now, then there's no need for the vaccine. Oh, and by the way, a healthy 27-year-old Chicago doctor died three months following COVID shots, raising long-term safety concerns. No, that's not long-term. That's only three months. My concern is how many people are going to come down with long-term effects at a year, year and a half, and two years. That's far more of a concern to me. These are just things I want you to think about. Mind you, everything I'm citing is coming from mainstream science. And I want to thank <clears throat> Michael uh, for sending me over a Harvard and Whitehead Institute study on SARS-CoV-2 RNA reverse transcriptase and integrated into human genome. Uh, quote, uh, this is from, I believe, uh, Dr. Uh, Bacardi uh, Sukhart. Well, I don't know that I'm the world's or even this circle's leading authority on this. Uh, that would likely be Vanessa. Uh, I will just say that RNA is certainly one step removed from DNA and that its reverse transcription and subsequent insertion into the host cell genome will not occur with very high frequency. In this re regard, the AstraZeneca and Johnson Johnson DNA vaccines are far more worrisome. Induction of autoimmunity or other harmful immune effects does not require persistent expression of the antigen, although that would very likely aggravate it. Generally speaking, short-term effects such as anaphylaxis and coagulation disorders can be tied to the case cause uh, with greater certainty than long-term effects such as immune disorders, particularly in the absence of reliable and complete statistical tracking and without very complete immunological examination of the patients in question. I guess that more or less captures what uh, Sukhari had in mind. And now what he's re referring to is this new study from Harvard uh, shows that the, they cannot say with certainty that this RNA will not adversely affect your DNA. There's just too many people on this right now in the scientific journals showing that it can just some things to think about. All right? Uh, we're 45 minutes into our program. I'm going to open it up now for calls, 888-874-4888. Again, we're providing information that the mainstream media and the scientific community in large amount will not, but there's tens of thousands of us. I am a scientist. I'm a PhD in public health science and human nutrition and was a senior research fellow at the Institute of Applied Biology for 33 years and did over 138 original studies, many very important, though I won't go into that. So I'm not just a lay person. 
And uh, here's another one just to give you some something to think about. Quote, the Wuhan variant affects vaccinated people more than unvaccinated. Again, this is just one of the problems that we're not being told. We're told none of the negatives and people dying or having adverse effects. They're, they're standing behind, oh, not a problem. Well, there are problems. Rare blood clots, that's a serious problem. And it's happening more and more. All right? My final thing here before we go to your calls um, and I posted a Harvard study showing this, uh, is, and the U.S. health officials call for a pause on Johnson Johnson vaccine over rare blood clots. Um, and by the way, anyone who is sharing this information is themselves condemned. I will do more on this on tomorrow's program. Your opportunity to call in and share your points of view. All right, so give us a call. Now, going to an issue that I started last week, do we have any moral or legal obligation to the people we injure, kill, displace? Now, you may think that that is a superficial question, but think deeper. Think of all the 20 million people who've died in the United States, uh, died around the world due to the United States intervention in regime changes and supporting always supporting, never democracy, never social movements, never the people, never unions, never environmentalists, always supporting dictators, whether it's Pinochet with, uh, with uh, uh, Operation Condor and all the displacements. And yet there seems to be this idea that we're not obligated. I didn't go kill anyone. It's not my war. But your taxpayer dollars... And the people you voted for are the ones who decide whether it's Barack Obama or, and he had his Tuesday morning kill list and drone list. But don't worry about the drones. They don't really kill civilians. They're real smart. No, they killed 29 times more minimally, 29 times more innocent civilians. But as long as we don't have to see a dead baby on a table, it doesn't impact us. Why is that? Why is it that other people suffering, including in Yemen, and in fact, I've mentioned at least 100 times in this program, we have 16 million hungry children in the United States going to bed food insecure, and we haven't done a damn thing about it, nothing. 2.5 million homeless children, we've done nothing about it. Well, in Yemen, there's more children who are starving to death and who have starved than in America in its entire history. Not a single thing done. And yet, if... If progressives, though there are none in, in government, unfortunately, that I know of, but even if the liberal Democrats uh, start to rebel and demand that the corporate Democrats, and they've been in absolute total control, say, open up all blockades, stop supporting Saudi Arabia, end this war in Yemen, it would happen. It would happen overnight. But there's too many defense contractors and others who profit from this, and there's too many Policy wonks who ideologically are in bed with everything bad happening in the world, so nothing happens. So your thoughts on this. Why NATO, why NATO destroyed Libya 10 years ago? This is from Global Research. Manlio Denusi. And here's what he had to say. 10 years ago, on March 19, 2011, U.S. NATO forces began their bombardment of Libya by air and by sea. The war was initiated directly by the United States, first through African, uh, Africa Command, AFRICOM, and then through NATO under U.S. command. Over the course of seven months, U.S. NATO airplanes carried out 30,000 missions, including 10,000 strikes involving 40,000 bombs and missiles. Italy, with the consensus of its multi-party parliament, um, played a part in the war, providing seven air bases and... Uh, on aircraft carriers, well, even before the air naval offensive, tribal, and listen carefully, listen carefully what I'm going to tell you, tribal and Islamic groups hostile to the government of Libya had already been financed and armed, and special forces were infiltrated, especially by Qatar, in order to spread armed conflict within the country. A peaceful country where everybody was prosperous, no poverty, everybody had a home, Everybody had an advanced education who wanted one, and yet 
Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and all the neocons, Newland, all the rest, decided take out Libya, take out Gaddafi. And that's exactly what was done. And cheering by the New York Times and all the other papers, including some programs on Pacifica, which should have been some pushback against that supporting of this regime change, but it wasn't. And that's how an African country, which as documented by the World Bank in 2010, maintained, quote, high levels of economic growth, where GDP rose 7.5% a year, which demonstrated, quote, high human development indicators, such as universal access to primary and secondary education, and a 40% university attendance rate that's higher than the United States. That was all destroyed. Taking disparities into account, the average standard of living in Libya was higher than any other African country. About 2 million migrant immigrants, mostly African, found work there and hospitable and humane working conditions. The Libyan state, which possessed the largest oil reserves in Africa, ding, 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 largest oil reserves in Africa, ding, ding, ding. That's why in the hell Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton and all the other people decided to take it out. Yet the New York Times and all of its reporters and all of its high-profiled agents, they could not find that to write about. Wow, how corrupt is our media. In addition, they had natural gas. They ceded limit profit margins to foreign companies, but there was one other reason. And those resources enabled Libya to make about 150 million U.S. investments. Libyan investment in Africa were decisive in the African Union's creation of three financial organizations. The African Monetary Fund, headquartered in Cameroon, the African Central Bank, headquartered in Nigeria, and the African Investment Bank, headquartered in Tripoli. The mission of these three organizations is to create a common market and common currency for Africa, in Africa, no longer needing to use the U.S. dollar. So it's no coincidence the NATO war then was to destroy the Libyan state was initiated barely two months after the rise of the African Union, which on January 31st led to the creation that year of the African Monetary Fund. This is proven by emails written by the Obama administration's Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, later released by WikiLeaks, showing how the United States and France wanted to eliminate Gaddafi before he used Libya's gold reserves to create a pan-African currency as an alternative to the dollar and the franc and the currency, uh, the currency France imposed on 14 colonies. It also, it also proved by the fact that the banks were released even before the bombers hit in 2011. So that's the truth of Libya. And so many Libyans were destroyed, killed, tortured. And yet, when was the last time you heard anything of that? How about at no time? Anne from New York, your call. Go good, ahead, good afternoon. Um, a famous author, I think it was Orwell, said something along the lines, those with the least intelligence will always be granted the most authority. And I have an autoimmune disease. I haven't been able to get vaccines of any sort for decades. And I do believe I'm not going to be going anywhere ever again, any place, <laughs> restaurant, whatever, because it's it's coming down the road, papers, papers. And um, the people who will be given this task to enforce, it, it will probably be the most important thing in their life is to tell me where to go and what I can do and not do. Your thoughts on how to handle this? Okay, Anne, I understand your frustration, but understand as long as we stay silent or as long as we turn our back and walk away from the problem thinking somehow this won't happen, it will happen. And you are correct. The vaccines were number one. But worse than COVID, believe it or not, in my opinion, is going to be the Great Reset. And with that, they will have, you will not have paper currencies or coins. You will not have, uh, you will not have the rights and freedoms that you have. There'll be lists of people who will be able to get an injection. And we're going to play that tomorrow, where on 60 Minutes, they actually show this liquid with a sensor in it that's injected into your body and therefore Every single thing that they need to know about you, they're going to know biologically where you're at, your state of health, etc. Do you really want something that can't be taken out once it's in, where they know what they're recording about you, what they're monitoring, and you don't? You only know the hype. 
So we have to stand up and fight back. And right now the marches won't do it. Demonstrations won't do it because we can't unify because we're a nation also that's divided, unfortunately and regrettably, because of identity politics. It's keeping people separated instead of joining together as a common bond to realize those who have the power are the ones that should be ousted from office. And so the lawsuits are what we're going to do now. Thank you very much, Ann. We've got to break away for BAI. However, I'm going to take the calls up to the top of the hour for others who would like to call in and share their points of view. 888-874-888. So when another call comes in, I'll be happy to take it. Don't despair, Ann. We're, we still have resources. We still have people. 40% of all people in the U.S. military are refusing the vaccines. What are they doing? They're trying to mandate chips, an absolute travesty, to put into a soldier what you will never be told the truth about because it comes from DARPA, and they're an utterly corrupt organization within the Defense Department. And they, they do all the biological weapons uh, oversight or all the unique weapons oversight. So uh, we have to fight back. It's time. Uh, no calls right at this moment. Okay, if there's a call comes in in the next three minutes, happy to take it. Just a few more th thoughts then. Um, so now you know why Libya was taken on. Everything else was a lie. Think about this. No one in government was willing to be responsible, not in the CA, not in the Defense Department, not in the Pentagon, not in the White House, not the State Department, not anywhere else, not the Council on Foreign Relations. Nobody was willing to say, this is not a good idea. We're going to kill tens of thousands of people, displace millions of people, and take the most prosperous, healthy, and democratic and free country in all of Africa, 54 countries, and we're going to destroy it. Not a single voice. So, and your members of Congress went right along with it as well, including Joe Biden. So, do they, should we hold anybody responsible for anything anymore? Or is this just, uh, this is the Wild West. Make up your rules as you go along. Warren from New Jersey, you're our final caller. Warren, go ahead, please. Hi, hi Gary. Yes, I'd like to know, uh, uh, you've been speaking a lot about ivermectin, and I believe everything you say about it. Um, I would like to know, how does one go about finding where to get treatment from with this ivermectin. Okay, first, before you get treated with anything, do your homework. Look up all the articles, and there are lots of them, dozens and dozens on ivermectin. And look at them, read them. Uh, most articles, you might be a, a little challenged by some of the scientific uh, terminology, but the conclusions are almost always what you want to look at and the results, and those are in lay language. So look at this so that if you do something, it's because you have the confidence you've done your homework. That done, then look up physicians. Uh, and I would suggest that you now, at one time it would have been more complementary holistic physicians uh, who will see you, uh, see your needs, and if appropriate, give you a prescription for it. It is one of the safest drugs in the world, safer than an aspirin. And it has the scientific peer review literature behind it supporting its use prophylactic for people at risk. Uh, younger people, there's no need for it. In fact, as you heard him say, people under 70, there's no reason to get this. And then they're, they're understand something how corrupt they are. They're wanting every person on earth, especially Bill Gates, to get vaccinated. Yet the science shows if you have an autoimmune condition and you get vaccinated, that could throw your body into a, a hyper autoimmune condition and that could injure you or kill you. So when you take out all the people who shouldn't be vaccinated because of medical conditions, and yet they're taking out nobody, 100% of people walking in will not be given any of the side effects of any of the drugs. Uh, they won't be given any informed consent. They'll just be vaccinated and wait a few minutes there, 15 minutes, whatever it is, to see if there's immediate adverse effects. As if there's not, then you're good to go. That's not true. So... You want to do your homework. You want to align with a physician who can look at your health needs and look at your larger health needs because the healthier you are, vitamin D, vitamin C, excuse me, zinc and magnesium can help you stay healthy. The healthier the immune system, the less risk of any virus. And mind you, we also said today that it's dangerous 
if you have already contracted COVID, and many people have, many didn't even know they were, uh, were, had COVID because they're healthy enough, the immune system just destroyed them. Some people have minor symptoms. Younger, healthier, are the less symptoms you have or no symptoms. And I didn't get to the part in his discussion where he talks about asymptomatic people are not going to infect other people. That is another myth. Just like the variants, all the variants are coming. You've got to get the variants. You've got to get a variance every month. You might have to get two or three to four, a hundred different variants in their mind. They don't care. Remember, it's just one greed fest at this time. Everything they're saying is a lie. Trust nothing that these people say because they have been lying from the beginning and not caring about the consequences. Okay? Have a nice day. Thank you all for listening, and you all have a nice day. Riding in your car, you turn on.